Patrick Cheever started early. When he was about seven years old, his dad brought home a moped, which to Patrick was the dream machine. He rode the wheels off that moped, racking up mile after mile, riding back and forth in the driveway and around his yard. That sealed it. Patrick was in love with riding motorcycles. And so continued, riding, fixing, buying, selling, until something happened. Not to him, but to people close to him. And what happened made him sort of question mortality and the safety of him riding a motorcycle. So he walked away. He walked away from the internal combustion engine and began riding a mountain bike because it was safer. Or was it? In hindsight, he never really let the motorcycle go. This is a story about falling in love with motorcycles, then walking away from motorcycles, and finally returning back to the motorcycle. This story has all the elements you can relate to, as well as a mysterious disappearing guru, some personal demons, a cycling wake-up call, and a 500-mile ride on a Rokon two-wheel drive motorcycle type thingy. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicom. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragu. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Graham Jarvis. Quentin Smout. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. My name is Patrick Cheever, and I am uh, born and raised in Minnesota, currently living in Excelsior, Minnesota. It's a suburb. It's almost like an exurb uh, west of Minneapolis, metropolitan area. And uh, in terms of, of what I do, I've worked in the motorcycle industry for a number of years and held a number of different positions within service uh, engineering and regulatory disciplines. And I have a, a terrific family. I've got a wife who's a commercial architect, and I've got two great boys. And uh, we spend as much time as possible outside whenever we can, doing anything and all things that have to do with nature. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. It's, a, it's really a, a great pleasure to be here. 
you've you've been riding for 40 plus years i think you said i'm assuming this started when you were a kid started yeah i'm i'm 47 almost 48 now it started out when i was a kid um it's kind of funny actually i was thinking about this last night and it it started out my dad bought this moped and he brought it home you know the kind of moped with uh it was like a 49 cc unit with pedals and we lived at uh a farmhouse that had a, a really long driveway and I put 900 miles on that moped in the driveway and, and in the yard, right? Just riding anywhere I could. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> you were in love from, from square one from the first moment. That's incredible. Yeah. So did you ever yeah. calculate how many, how many trips that is back up and down the driveway? I thought about that too. Unfortunately, we uh, we moved out of that house before I had a chance to measure the length of the driveway. It was a good size yard. It was, an, it was several acres, and there was single track. I built some single track, and I mean that moped was put through its paces for sure. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny because that is the hardest thing to do, is, and not that it's it's a goal for, I think for anybody, but is to put miles on when you're riding slow and you're riding dirt. It just seems to take forever to put any amount of miles on, but the the wear and tear on the bike, well, that's another story altogether. Yeah, definitely. That's where you don't want to come across one of those bikes that has very low mileage, but somebody's ridden off road all the time because it, it could have been ridden to death. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Same, like, again, uh, thinking about side-by-sides and ATVs, right? They measure uh, operation in terms of hours. So you could get a unit with very few miles that maybe worked the fence line and had <laughs> unknown amount of, of idle time and abuse. That's right. You just mentioned when you, when you got this bike from, how old were you when you did the 900? Uh, well, how old were you when it started? Uh, I would put my age around seven oh, years wow. old when that bike first uh, came home. And then from age seven to maybe 13 or 14, just steadily riding that as much as I could. And, you know, at that same time, I was spending summers at a, a close friend's cabin here in, in northern Minnesota, and he always had uh, Yamaha Enduros. There was, a, I want to say, an XT250 and a 175. And, you know, they're like the, the late 70s, early 80s era, and we would take those out and ride them for days on end. So it it really was a, a, a love affair with two wheels from the very beginning. It sounds like dirt too, trail running, because you worked as a, I think as a mechanic for a four by four shop. I did. Yeah, I did that for a long time. I've always had, uh, I guess I've gravitated towards off-road. It's just what interests me more than uh, performance and, and street going vehicles. And I'm not sure if that stems from uh, my upbringing because I, I happened to have a, or I, I had a father that was very much an outdoors person and we'd spend a lot of time canoeing and camping and, and doing things of that nature. So that's, that's kind of what drove me to off-road. And it always felt like I was, I was becoming a better rider uh, on the dirt. And I, now in hindsight, I think that probably is, um, at least for me, the favorable way to to start on a motorcycle. 
you mean a better rider because you're riding dirt, a better street rider because you're riding dirt. Correct. Yeah. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think that is the case. You also have a, a, a passion for strange and innovative machines. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's, that's maybe another thing that started from an early age, but, um, if for some reason I have always sought out the things that others don't have or, or hadn't seen and it just the, the, the strange and unusual. (laughs) So it, uh, it started out again uh, with with four wheels, uh, and going back to like the the early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, the FJ40 Land Cruiser mm-hmm. was I don't know. It was when they stopped bringing them into the U.S. at least in 1984, and uh, they hadn't really gained a following. But they were still unusual, and I I just love the lines of those vehicles. I'm restoring one right now, actually, out in my my shop, and I was able to to find one of those for I mean a fraction of what they cost now, like less than a thousand dollars. And I drove that uh, all through high school and college, and that's where I started sinking my teeth into some of the unusual stuff. And I and since since that time had two Nissan patrols or both 1960s era and multiple series Land Rovers over the years um, and military vehicles and Dodge M37 and uh, power wagon. And then in terms of two wheels, uh, yeah, whatever I can find. My very first street bike was a Triumph Bonneville that was, cafeed out and had a little solo seat on it. It was a really neat bike. You, you had this, this desire to ride motorcycles right from when you were young. Did it sort of expand into any sort of travel or any sort of going out and exploring more? Or was this mainly doing stuff on the weekend, sort of, you know, heading out for the day and doing some trail running? Well, I'd say as a, as a kid and through my late teens, it was more of a focus on the weekend warrior trail riding. Mm-hmm type activities. There was no real on-road use or travel um, at that time. And even through college, I mentioned I had a, a Triumph as my first street bike. And I used that primarily just to enjoy myself uh, traveling around locally on weekends. And then I also used it to commute back and forth to university. But really, through the time until I was maybe 23 years old, I can only think of one weekend type trip where I uh, loaded up a tent and sleeping bag and went for a, well, I'll call it an extended distance. I was probably only a hundred, 150 miles away from home, but it was, uh, I would say late nineties. Uh, if you're familiar with Austin, Vince, uh, came out with Terra Circa and Mondo Enduro. Not necessarily in that order. I actually think maybe Mondo was the first one. Mondo's the first, yeah. Yeah. And those were, you know, they're pretty unique films and really, really entertaining and kind of gave you an uh, an appetite or or an idea of what you could do on a motorcycle. At least that's how I looked at it. And uh, shortly after that, I I went out and found a KLR 600 and started dabbling with taking that out on 
longer weekend trips and packing gear and trying to mix on road and off road uh, a little bit. And from there, it just, it seems like the entire scene started to escalate. And of course, you hear it mentioned frequently on your show, people talk about uh, McGregor and Borman and, and the long way around. And mm-hmm. that I think was a instrumental in, in a lot of ways in bringing adventure travel or touring out beyond like the the radius of the motorcycle community, right? So it became more of a household thing. So from there, you got more into street bikes? Yeah, a little bit more into street bikes. I'd say the most streetable bike I ever had was the Triumph because after the Triumph, there was a a short string of just esoteric machines that I could find on Craigslist for cheap and I'd bring them home and I'd, I'd get them running and I'd ride them and then I'd generally try to turn them you know, for a little bit of a profit. Mm-hmm. Those turned into a, uh, it was a GS 1100. It was a 1999. That was my first, I guess, big bore type adventure bike. And even that (laughs) kind of blurred the lines, right? It was, it was before the adventure moniker hit the GS name. And it was a bike that was geared towards on-road and off-road, at least on the surface. Great big thing. But boy, what a fun bike to ride. Um, and I took my first, I'd say, extended tour on that bike. And I went out to the Western States and just camped off the bike. And I strung a route together that was as much gravel as I could find. And I tried to really immerse myself into the scene. What did that do for you? That, that change your outlook or excite you in a way? Oh, yeah. It, it fueled a fire, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it it turned into uh, usually two to three trips a year for the next 10 years. Plus, after that, I would, I would continue touring um, as much and as often as I could. Another, another piece of that story that was instrumental in, in getting or picking my interest in motorcycle travel was Aerostitch, if you're familiar with that company. Sure. I, uh, I wear their jacket and pants. Oh, great. Great. <laughs> uh, Aerostitch is, is Duluth based in there right here in Minnesota and they host an event called the very boring rally. And it's, right. it's an event that occurs every five years. So it's, um, it's not a frequent thing. Um, but I was able to get to the, the second one they, they hosted and it was just, it was, it felt like I was riding into a community of like-minded, you know, kindred spirits, if you will. There's, it's a, a huge amount of adventure bikes and and people really ride everything up there. Um, saw mopeds and a lot of airhead BMWs, mm-hmm. but a really neat place to spend uh, three days and get yourself psyched. Uh, Greg Fraser, Dr. Greg, uh, gave a presentation at that one. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, man, this guy's something else. <laughs> He's been absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're getting excited about, um, you know, traveling around your bike and you're riding your bike and everything. But in, in, in May of 2016, things sort of changed for you. So can we just sort of back it up there and, and you tell the story starting with, I guess, starting with getting ready to, to go on a trip. Yeah. Uh, 
a pivotal spot in my motorcycle career, I guess you'd say. I had been planning a trip at the time I was riding an 1150 GS Adventure, and I had been planning a solo trip out to the Bighorn Mountains. And I was going to, it was going to be kind of a fast, fast turnaround, probably about a week out on the road and then getting back home. And it, leading up to that trip, um, I don't know why I, I had kind of a sense of anxiety. Something wasn't sitting right. It just didn't feel natural. It felt almost like I was forcing the trip or it wasn't the right time to go or kind of an unexplained, unexplained phenomenon really. But, um, I, the day before the trip, I had gone over to my mom and dad's house and we had dinner together and had some, uh, laughs and, and talked about the plan for the trip a little bit. And then I proceeded to go home that evening and I stood next to my bike in the garage. I always have this kind of, uh, inventory process, right? Where I, I walk around and make sure that I've got everything uh, in its place and, and tied down. I didn't forget the essentials and things like that. And again, just had this, this feeling of anxiety, like, should I go? Should I not go? And, and for me, that's it's really unusual because I'm usually just chomping at the bit to get on the bike and, and head out. Fast forward to the next morning. I got up early and uh, the sky was a little overcast and the temperature was nice, which to me is is actually really nice riding conditions. And I got on the bike and started making my way down uh, southwest uh, Minnesota. So it was maybe 150 miles into the ride cruising along. And then my phone starts lighting up with uh, text messages from my brother and from uh, my wife, and then the phone rang a couple times, and I I don't generally make it a practice to uh, even look at my phone or respond well. Mm -hmm. And I pulled over to the the nearest place I could find, and I uh, listened to a voicemail from my brother, and he said, hey, "It's Dad. Uh, something happened, and, and they don't know what it is, but he's in an ambulance right now. So if you're in a place where you can." turn it around and get back home, um, do it. So I just based on the, the feeling that I had leading up to the trip and then this message coming through, I didn't even bother calling him back. I, uh, I just texted on way and I turned the bike around and then I pinned it for whatever it was, 150 miles back into the Metro, which is unlike me. I mean, I'm a hugely conservative slow speed rider, but mm. Um, I rode, uh, straight from that point in my trip to the hospital, uh, where my dad was, I got there just in time to, to say goodbye, which was, was tough. You know, he was at that point in, a uh, what I assumed was a medically induced coma. And, um, we were told by the surgeon that his condition was something that he wouldn't cover from. And at that point we made the collective decision to pull the plug. And what it was just for listeners was a, it was an abdominal aortic aneurysm. So, I mean, 
that's kind of like something that's written in the stars. If if that occurs, pretty strong chance you're not going to pull out of it. And what's more is it's a genetic condition. So I, my assumption is if there's some that gets me, that'll probably be it. <laughs> you, uh, and no warning for this sort of thing. This is something that just all of a sudden happens like a lottery number coming up. Only that's not the, a good one. Right. A different kind of lottery. Um, yeah. And it's, it is genetic, I learned. And it's strange because my grandfather, my dad's dad, also passed away from the same thing. It was after he, uh, he was 88 years old and he lifted a lawnmower into the back of his station wagon and off goes the aorta and, and very shortly thereafter he passed away. Jeez. So the, the part about it that has always interested me is that I, I wonder if at that time my grandfather passed away, the doctor told my dad that this is genetic. It's as easy as getting an ultrasound every five years to look at the aorta to determine if there's any uh, thinning of the arterial walls or any risk. And if you, ca- if you catch it, it can be, you can mitigate, right? You can clamp it. You mean if so, you catch the thinning, they can do something with it before it, it, it balloons up. Correct. Exactly. And, and I, I think there's obviously some risk uh, involved with that process too, but clearly it's better than the alternative. Mm-hmm. So my takeaway was to get ultrasounds and I have done that since uh, dad passed away and so far so good. I haven't, I haven't had any issues or anything turn up. Uh, did, and did, has your, did your dad get ultrasounds? What, do you know if he was even aware of it that way? I, I don't think he did. And that's, I, he just, if he had, I, there's a strong chance he'd be around today. I mean, the guy was the picture of health. He was really something else. So it was, uh, it really knocked us all off kilter. Well, you, you were close with your dad and and he's also the one that got you into camping. He's the outdoors person. Yeah. Extremely close with him. And I, I think about him every single day of my life. Um, yeah. And I'm just thankful to have, have had him and my mom. She's an extraordinary person too. She's still, she's still with us. Um, and she lives close. So that's great. This, but, this hit you pretty hard. You sort of fell into a depression afterwards. Yeah, it did. It hit, it hit really hard. And, you know, I, to tie it into where, you know, maybe we'll take the story with regard to motorcycling is when somebody that close to you passes away, particularly if it's, unexpected it gives you uh, a real sense of mortality and you start to think you know pretty pretty indestructible feeling uh up through your 30s and uh that one it just it made me realize wow you know this this isn't permanent life and and i want to make sure that i'm being very careful with myself and i want to be around for my uh, family as long as I can. And that's where I kind of started to think about motorcycling and, and all the risks and things like that. And it gets in your head a little bit. When you, when you worry about that, when you think about mortality, is it mainly your family and providing for your family? Or is it about you thinking about, you know, getting the most out of the time that you have here? I mean, not taking away from your family at all, but you know, what, what sort of things do you think about? <laughs> Um, I think it's, a, I think it's a little bit all of the above, if that makes sense. I, I think about 
leaving, mostly leaving behind my wife and kids. Um, and just, there's just a lot of things that I, I want to close the loop on before I go. A lot of things I want to do and I want to do everything I can to make sure I'm present to, to raise my boys, um, to be great men. And, and all of a sudden after that, you know, uh, experience with my dad, I started to question whether or not, uh, motorcycling was worth it. Was it really that important to me? And, and, uh, yeah, that was kind of the start of a difficult decision. Mm. We talked about depression or we, we mentioned depression. What did it look like for you? Um, it, I, I was admittedly probably going, even leading back a couple of years prior to my dad passing away, I had a strange relationship with alcohol and, uh, probably in, enjoyed it in a way that was different than your, your run of the mill average person. I was kind of a one drink is too many, 10 isn't enough, uh, type of person. And, and I, maybe I could be described as an on off switch versus a a dimmer switch where some people could go out and have a beer with a friend and, and they call it good and they could go home for the night and that was it. And that for me, it didn't, uh, it didn't scratch the itch, right? I it was like, why light the lamp if you're not gonna <laughs> you know, really set it ablaze. So, so anyway, but hang on. What kind of drunk are you though? <laughs> or do you um, get drunk? Uh, yeah, but like not, not in such a way where, um, I'm not like a staggering, slurring type of person. I never got into trouble or got pulled over or drove or anything like that. But I, that it, the interesting part about that is the type of, uh, we can call it the type of drunk that I was changed after my dad passed away. And I think that uh, maybe I started to, I started to surface some emotions more after I'd have a few drinks and, uh, it, it was not, a a healthy approach. It was not something that was, I would say, certainly not strengthening my, my marriage. And I, I knew that at the time my kids were quite, uh, young that I wanted to make some changes in my life and, and try to get out of that, that cycle and, and turn it around. So, um, I guess jump ahead to 2018, I was able to just completely part ways with, with alcohol and I I haven't looked back and I have absolutely no regrets. It was a, it was a, a great decision. And I feel very fortunate that I didn't have to, you know, seek any kind of help or, or anything. You did it on your own. Wow. Yeah, it was, <laughs> the more you talk to me, the more you'll see that I kind of, I don't know, I, I do things on my own, probably more than I should. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, at, at the same time, you're, you're sort of debating about the motorcycle and you're, and you're dealing with mortality and you're dealing with depression. You had two friends who had motorcycle crashes. Yes, and that was, that was the next stage that that kind of buried the hatchet <laughs> for me and it was it was obviously like any type of a, a motorcycle crash totally unexpected um it was two two friends and they're within 
I'll just call it generically six months of each other. And in both cases, they were riding in daylight. They were wearing all the gear. They had helmets on. They were sober as could be. In fact, one was, uh, you know, I want to say coming back from some type of a, a charitable ride down in the southern part of the state. But um, both instances were were fatal crashes. Wow. That's, yeah. that's just uh, just unbelievable. I mean, especially two friends. Mm-hmm. Wow. That must have hit you hard. It did. It was my first... It was my first exposure to somebody that was in my circle having that kind of a that kind of a crash. Um, I've got I've got another close friend that I had done some riding with. He, I mean, this guy lays his bike down routinely, and and you know he'll skin a knee and gets up and walks away. Right, he gets up and walks away. Um, but yeah, these two these two hit home and. Um, there was there was one more event that was like right in between both of those crashes, and it was uh, it was on my dad's birthday, and I was at my office at the time, and I wanted to ride my motorcycle over to the cemetery uh, just to pay respects. I hadn't been there for a while, and I got on the bike, and um, it was middle of the day middle of the week and I was riding down the interstate and it was it was wide open there was no traffic and I was in the express lane so uh in the US right that's the far left lane and no cars around that I could see and out of nowhere a car came up next to me and and for whatever reason they turned on their left hand turn signal and changed lanes directly into my bike and mm. forced me off the road at 65 miles per hour into the shoulder and I I nearly hit the guardrail um but I was able to recover and get back on the road and that that one really scared me you know so these these events uh, kind of led to my decision to hang up the proverbial spurs if you will and uh, step away from motorcycles i thought that i would refocus my attention on four wheels and get back into some automotive restoration work and um try to try to be safe and i sold off my gs and uh i i there's a few years i didn't really look back but the funny part is i never stopped thinking about it and and shopping i just it's in my blood (laughs) looking for motorcycles (laughs) (laughs) well it must have been hard to walk away from because i mean you've had a whole life up till then of of motorcycles big part of your life of what you're doing and and just to stop and walk away yeah that's that's kind of monumental and 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 what do your friends say at that point i mean you're riding friends uh, there were definitely a small number of them that were, were really disappointed and they never really stopped poking me, you know, to, to get another bike or get back on the bike. Um, I had, uh, one friend that had, uh, pitched taking a trip around Scotland. And I mean, those kinds of things for me are really hard to, 
to turn away from because I mean, that's a passion. Mm-hmm. And then also, I mean, working in the industry also, you're, you're always around bikes and you're around people that are passionate about motorcycles. So it's bikes day in and day out. You're, it you're is. talking about bikes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that that's incredible. So, you, so by not riding though and putting your focus into other things, so you, you feel that you're, you know, being a, a little bit safer in life and, and you decided to go with a real safe route. I think of replacing the motorcycle with a mountain bike, because what can go wrong with mountain biking? I had, yeah, yes. I had always been a, a mountain biker enthusiast. And again, going back to my childhood, I just love two wheels. I love bikes. But anyway, I had, I had gotten away from mountain biking going back to maybe 2006 era. I had a, a full suspension bike and had taken that out and had a, a crash off of a jump that wound up uh, herniating, a, I think it was two discs and caused quite a lot of back pain. So I thought, wow, well, apparently I don't bounce as well as I used to when I was 17. So I uh, sold that bike off and uh, I picked up a, a fat bike. So like a a snow going type winter bike. And I used that for trail riding and slow paced stuff for a number of years. Um, but, uh, you mentioned getting back into mountain biking. Yes, that was, uh, right around 2019. I believe I, I built a carbon fiber suspension bike from the ground up and it was just a, a fantastic bike. Yeah. And with that, I, uh, re-immersed myself into trail riding and fitness, you know, trying to, to live as healthy as I could. And to your point, mountain bikes always came across to me as something, well, yeah, you crash them and you tip them over relatively frequently. And nine times out of 10, it might be a bruise. Um, worst case, maybe you, you get banged up or, you know, herniated disc, I guess. But mm-hmm. it felt like something that I'd always just get up and walk away from. So I, uh, yeah, I rode that as much as I could the first season. I felt like I got myself into a pretty, pretty good base level of fitness and I was able to crank out decent miles and, and, um, maneuver the bike over a lot of the obstacles that, that you come across. So where did the bike take you? Well, the bike took me, uh, on a, uh, a tour of the Western States with my family, I, I get these grand grandiose ideas and, uh, the, I'd say the spring of now I've got to think, was it 2020 or 2021? It must've been the spring of 2019 going into 20. No, I'm sorry, the fall of 2019 going into 2020, I hatched the idea of taking an overland trip out west with my family and we'd bring bicycles and I'd get to ride some trails, you know, in the western states. We'd focused on uh, Moab and Arizona and New Mexico at that time because the the trip was going to occur over spring break. So it was going to be in the March-April time frame. So the weather was conducive to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was another that was another exercise where I I sourced a, a unique four-wheel drive vehicle. And I, at the time, had been really uh, enjoying 
the show, the YouTube videos, uh, Roadkill, I think it's called, <laughs> Motor Trend Channel. And I thought, boy, it would be interesting to find a car at a junkyard and then build it into something capable of traveling thousands of miles. And uh, that's exactly what I did. So I, without getting into too much detail, I, I found a Mitsubishi Montero four-door in 92 with a five-speed and put a, a mild lift and tires and a winch and a rooftop tent and all the good stuff on it and went through the engine. And we did end up taking that out west and had a wonderful trip. We went through Colorado and into Moab and we uh, went back into the country, I guess the off-road areas and did some camping off the grid. So we get down to Arizona and we're in Prescott, Arizona. We had rented a cabin. It was just beautiful. It was It was a difficult cabin to access. So at that point, I was really happy that we had a winch and a differential lock and things like that. <laughs> but we uh, get to the cabin and there is a trail. It's called the Summit Mountain Loop that was down the mountain from the cabin, maybe about a 20-minute drive. 20 minutes of harrowing drive cliffside on like a two-track gravel road with snow and ice on it in spots. But the trail that I was looking at was 10 miles long and it had an elevation gain of 2,500 feet. So you'd go up and at the top there was a, a forest service lookout tower, which to me was appealing. I love that kind of thing. And then you ride back down. It was a mixed-use trail, so it was mountain biking, hiking, and I believe horseback. And not very well maintained, but it was still beautiful. And it was a perfect day, and uh, I rode, well, I rode as much as I could up to 2,500 feet. Um, there was a lot of pushing. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to the top and, and spent a little time. I even took a, a video of myself saying, wow, this is some of the best country and best mountain biking in my life. And then proceeded to head back down the other side, which was phenomenal. It was just fabulous. So, uh, so does the downhill side, are you going at speed? I am. And not, I don't want anyone to think that I'm like disconnect the brakes type of guy topped out. Not at all. I'm, I ride like an older guy, um, but I push it, you know, mm -hmm. I pushed it. And I moved through four miles of that last five mile leg back down to the bottom of the, the mountain. And I got down to a reasonably flat part and I felt like I was out of harm's way. So I opened it up a little more and it was more of a twisty kind of a sandy gravelly track that would take me back to the car. So I was still about a mile out from the car, I low-sided, the front wheel washed out, and I low-sided and came down perfectly on a rock that was coming out of the, the surface of the trail. And I was also wearing clipless pedals. And there's probably some people that are shaking their head right now, like who rides a trail bike with clipless pedals. But <clears throat> I, I did. And clipless pedals, for people that aren't cyclists, are um, counterintuitively the type of pedal where you snap your shoe in, like a, almost like a binding. Mm -hmm. So you can pull up as well as push down. Exactly. Yeah. It just gives you really good control and a good uniform, consistent pedaling position. But it also holds your foot in place, which if you are falling, 
at a fast rate of speed is not ideal. So I hit the rock and the second I hit the rock, I realized I had serious problems and uh, I, I'll just cut to the chase. I Hang on, back up. Don't, don't just cut to the chase. So you, 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 <laughs> you hit the rock and, and how do you know what's take just a quick break here. I've got two things I want to tell you about. Stick around though. We've got a lot of twists and turns coming up still. Stay with us. As a rider, fatigue is dangerous and it's certainly something that we need to watch out for and do our best to avoid. It's important, of course, to take frequent stops, get off the bike, move around. That's a given because fatigue creeps in in many ways like cold, heat, wind, even vibration, or long stretches of road can certainly fatigue, as can the muscles remaining in the same position mile after mile, as I'm sure you already know. Now, I mentioned frequent stops to, is one way to deal with it. Another way to mitigate fatigue, especially in your right arm, wrist, and hand, as well as mental fatigue, because that right hand position has a lot to do with mental fatigue at times, and that's the throttle lock. A throttle lock holds your throttle in one position so you can relax your grip. That relaxes the muscles in your hand, your wrist, and your arm. It's huge. The trick is getting a throttle lock that works perfectly, that's easy to use, and that doesn't drift off after you set it, because that just increases stress, which increases fatigue. The solution is the Atlas Throttle Lock. The Atlas Throttle Lock was invented by riders David and Heidi Winters while they were riding a KTM around the world. And what an incredible job they did. The Atlas Throttle Lock is a stunning work of machine art. It's got two buttons on it that give you positive feedback when you push them. One is for engage and the other is disengage. It's that simple. You can adjust it without disengaging it. So once your throttle is set, you can just twist to a new position. And I find that it works so well that I use it far more than any other throttle lock that I've ever used. It's consistent and reliable. It just works. And that's a great product. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. Any good mechanic will tell you quality tools make all the difference, not only in getting the job done, but getting the job done right and doing a quality job. And the parallel I'm working here is with your foot pegs. The stock foot pegs, they're great to set your feet on, but that's about it. If you're a serious rider, you want serious foot pegs like IMS Products makes. They have a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs and they've been making parts since 1976 for motorcycles and they take everything they've learned in all those years and put them into the adventure motorcycle foot pegs they make now for us. The reason they do that is because they're riders just like you and I. They know what quality is. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. Hang on, back up. Don't, don't just cut to the chase. So you, 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 you hit the rock and, and how do you know something's wrong? It, well, I could hear it for one, as, as cringy as that is. Um, but moreover, it was something happened in the break that caused uh, the bone or the fracture to contact a pretty major uh, nerve matrix. and more than pain to be honest was just a, a sensation that 
unlike anything I'd ever felt in my life. I immediately knew there was a problem. What sort of sensation? It, it was, this is hard to, it's hard to put into words, but the, the nerves in my hip region, the nerves in my leg told my brain that my foot was pointing 180 degrees back. I mean, it was like the signal was totally positive. I, if, if I hadn't looked down and somebody asked me, I'd have said, yep, the leg is reversed. But wow. uh, oddly, it wasn't. My toe was pointing forward. It looked normal, but it felt like it was on the wrong way. You're having trouble figuring out what's going on then. Yeah. And obviously, uh, a little bit of adrenaline at that point and, and feeling out of sorts. I was able to get my foot out of the pedal and, uh, um, again, immediately upon trying to stand, I knew this wasn't going to work favorably. I was able to uh, use my bike almost like a, a crutch and get myself up. And <clears throat> it was going, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Looking back, if I had known exactly the magnitude of what had happened, I'd have probably changed my, <laughs> changed my process a little bit. But I, being as stubborn as I am, uh, decided that regardless of what happened and what was wrong, my head was still working and I could still stand. So I was going to get myself off the trail. Mm. And this um, is one of those times where you can do yourself irreparable damage. That's exactly right. And that was where my hindsight's 2020 comment mm. came in because my, uh, my mother-in-law was, uh, she was a career nurse and and talking to her after you know i got myself to safety and the, the situation was behind me she mentioned that you know you probably should have ambulated or <laughs> or had somebody come get you out of there because you may have caused more damage doing you know making the movements that i was and and trying to get myself out of the situation mm-hmm. yeah so, so you, you you got yourself out like you walked out or you tried to ride the bike Oh, it was just a, it was a train wreck. I, I got the bike upright and I had a remote dropper seat post, which was fortunate, meaning that there was a button on my handlebar. I could hit that and drop the seat. I got my leg lifted over the top tube of the bike and I got onto the seat and I thought that I would use it as like a, a strider bike and I could kick myself, you know, rest the injured leg on a pedal and use my right leg to kick myself back down to safety. So, yep, I, I got my leg over the bike and I started to kick my way down the trail. And uh, unsurprisingly, uh, my front wheel tracked off down into a little rut. I went down again. Mm. And that one was, that was probably the worst pain of my entire life. Um, I started to lose a little bit of, of memory of that, that particular moment. Mm-hmm. But I got myself back up again after a few minutes of struggling and uh i heard a road and it was it was down a a slope and there was a uh almost like a emergency exit point and i was able to get myself down and directly across the road was a ymca camp that was closed uh due to covid but i did see a person away across the the commons area there's like a big grass area and there was a person uh, standing at one of the cabins, I whistled at him because I didn't really have the strength to yell. 
And I remember he got mad because I whistled. He said, why are you whistling at me? That's not polite. (laughs) And I said, I think I broke my leg. And at that point, I mean, he totally changed uh, his mindset and came over and turned out to be just the greatest, one of the greatest humans ever. He was, he was fabulous. And uh, he loaded my bike and me into his truck and took me back down to where my Montero was parked. And then I said, we got to go get my family, which again, not a great decision. I should have just gone straight to the hospital. So I've got this uh, gentleman who's camping somewhere, right? They were in a rented cabin on the top of the mountain. Oh, right. <laughs> so I take this uh, gentleman who had not driven a Montero or a five-speed Montero before. I put him in the driver's seat and he took me back up to the cabin through like harrowing off-road conditions. He did a great job. Mm. And then we went down to the hospital and I had uh, five days and a total hip replacement in Prescott, Arizona. You, you broke your hip mm-hmm. and they had to replace it. Yep. It, you know, I, I don't want to get into it, the weeds too much and take too much time, but this is an interesting part. Um, I was told after my, it was a CAT scan of the, of the hip. I was told that they were going to be able to pin it or do some type of reconstruction. And I was like, great, you know, whatever we have to do, you know, minimize the damage and time so we can get back to this vacation, which not realistic, but that's where my head was at. (laughs) And uh, they get me to the point I had to wait for a a surgeon to become available. uh, Oddly, well, maybe not surprisingly, Prescott, Arizona is like a hip replacement capital because there's so many retirement communities around there. So it was kind of a fortuitous oh, place to have a crash. That's great. <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the perfect spot. Yeah. Yeah. And they get me down into the pre-op room on my gurney and I'm pretty well out of it on painkillers. And the surgical tech comes into the room and he says, okay, I'm going to be bringing, in, bringing you in for your total hip replacement now. And I, I was like thinking, wait, 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 <laughs> this isn't what we talked about. You've um, got the wrong person. Yeah, <laughs> this I've is got the, the wrong... nightmare scenario. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You've got the wrong guy. Um, and then the surgeon came in. Uh, fortunately, he, he was just a great guy and real, real no nonsense kind of surgeon. He was a, a, a Marine, as I recall, and he approached surgery kind of like you'd expect a Marine to approach it. And he said, look, there's, there's a really good chance that if we were trying to try to rebuild this thing, it would end up the dying off. I guess the, the portion of the bone, the ball that goes into the socket can actually lose blood flow and become a serious problem. So he said the, the only option is a total hip replacement. So they, they go in through the side of your hip and they use a some type of a sawzall and cut the top of your femur off and then they bore out the femur and hammer in a stake it's real primitive kind of kind of work but primitive but wildly effective i'll say that that's amazing that is incredible there's so much in there but i mean let me just go back to the point (laughs) of the obvious the bicycle this safe thing that you're riding turns out to be well maybe not so safe 
So, so at, at this point, do you reevaluate things? You look at this and think, hang on a second here. You know, I, I'm scared of the motorcycle, not scared, but I mean, I, I got off the bike for, for safety reasons. I didn't, I didn't want that level of uh, adventure, that level of risk. And here inadvertently you've, you've exceeded that with your mountain bike. I did. I managed to exceed it. Um, definitely. And, you know, with that injury came kind of a fear of, of crashing a, a mountain bike again. Here's the difference between, at least for me, I know that you have a lot of guests on the show that are aggressive. I mean, adventure riders, trail riders, they'll, they'll get out there and laying the bike down isn't a big deal. For me, laying a motorcycle down, it doesn't happen very often. Um, but on a mountain bike, I, you know, probably every other trail ride, I'll get off the bike one way or another, find a way to lay it down. But again, you don't always hurt yourself when that happens. Um, so my, my love of biking was mountain biking was still there, but I had a built in fear now that I'd go down again on the left hip and, uh, revision surgery of a hip replacement is allegedly not as, as successful as the first one. So I didn't want to risk that. And, um, I guess, I guess from there I started thinking, well, I mean, motorcycles, I generally keep them upright. Um, and I really want to be back out on two wheels. So here we are. So you're going <laughs> to, you're going to switch back. By the way, let me just throw in here that I also have broke my wrist on a mountain bike, but I, I hate to say this kind of stuff because it's, it seems like one of those things you shouldn't say, but I never had a problem on a motorcycle other than pulling my back, trying to pick the bike up when it's in mud and stuff like that. But, but I mean, as far as coming off the bike, yeah, the wrist was from a mountain bike. So mm-hmm. they are very dangerous mountain bikes. I, I really want to, want to make that point to people. Mountain biking is dangerous. Absolutely. And I, I'm just, I'm kind of laughing right now thinking what, uh, listeners might think when they hear me say earlier on that I switched to mountain biking because I thought it was safer. <laughs> and look where I am now. Well, I mean, it's all to do so how much you push it, right? Because I'm not riding my mountain bike hardly at all now. But but in British Columbia, we had all kinds of trails, and and I love to ride. Uh, I love mountain biking. I do. But uh, yeah, you can certainly get in trouble with anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you can. So, what did you decide? Did you decide to get back into to riding motorcycles? Uh, yeah, I, I did. I started scoping out smaller displacement things or, or machines that wouldn't get me at breakneck speeds and, and maybe almost leverage the the, the platform of bike that I chose as a, a safety net, right? So don't, don't jump right in head first and get a 1250, uh, BMW or, or Africa twin or something or an R 1000 RR. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> um, and I was able to, I'll say this, my wife is one of the most supportive and wonderful people on earth. And, and she has always supported my motorcycling and mountain biking and all the crazy stuff I get into, even though she doesn't always like it. She's always worried about me when I go on motorcycle trips because, as I, I mentioned, I do travel alone. I don't generally go with anybody else. And uh, she was 
warming to the idea of me getting a smaller displacement bike and using it for exclusively off-road type touring. So low speeds, um, avoiding traffic and still getting out to some of the fly fishing spots that I like to visit and getting into the backcountry. So from there, I started looking at options and I love the idea of the Trail 125 Honda Honda re-released. I had Trail 90s in the past. Mm-hmm. Thought that was pretty uh, a pretty neat platform, but it wasn't. I don't know. It, it maybe not versatile enough and not capable enough to get back to what I had envisioned in my mind. I wanted to go way back country, so that's where I landed on the the Rokon as a neat way to get back into motorcycling, um, be able to get way off the beaten track and still keep my, my passion for the bizarre and strange <laughs> vehicles that I've always loved. You know, we've talked about Rokon a couple of times here on the show. And one time it was about the Darien Gap, a couple that rode the Rokon through the Darien Gap, but describe the Rokon. What exactly is this? Um, it is, a two-wheel drive. It's a full-time two-wheel drive. Well, we can call it a motorcycle. It's honestly looks a little bit more like an adult, an adult mini bike, Ooh, if you will. Yeah, no, I got to stop you right there because every time I say mini bike, when it comes to Rokon, I get emails from people saying it's not a mini bike, but it does kind of look like a mini bike. And can I also point out that once again, you already said you're six foot six. I am. I'm a, I'm a big, tall guy, but, but the people that comment about the mini bike, uh, uh, calling it a mini bike, they're not wrong because the bike physically is, it's like the same size as a Harley. I mean, they're big bikes. When you stand next to them, they're Mm -hmm. a good size. The seat height isn't overly tall, but I mean, at six foot six, I'm very comfortable, uh, ergonomically riding that motorcycle. But aesthetically that's where you get into the mini bike look i mean it, it i think that they go on record saying that the engine used in the rokan is an industrial application well i mean it really is kind of a it's very similar to what you'd find in a garden tractor mm-hmm. industrial application and, and and mini bike i think like for me it's it's sort of the look of it because it it does have a mini bike style engine horizontal shaft air cooled engine that you would find on many Kimonos like rototillers and things like that has that style engine on it. I know they use a Kohler now. The tires are big balloon tires that look like they're kind of like ATV tires. I'm not sure if they are ATV tires or not, but, and, and the front forks are very vertical. It resembles a lot to me in my mind, a mini bike. And I think the seat height is, it's, it's less than a, than a, than a dual sport bike. I think it's like 32 inches or something, somewhere around there. Yes. So this is a fairly low bike when you're swinging your leg over it. Yes, low and a really, uh, I won't say lightweight, but manageable in time in terms of weight. They're around 208 pounds or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's but, not, not a high-speed <clears throat> bike. No, it's not a high-speed bike. It's a, the model that I have is a trail breaker, and it has a seven-horse Kohler engine. And uh, three-speed plunger-type gearbox, it's, I mean, 
it's not like a motorcycle transmission. There's no foot controls whatsoever on the Rokan, which are, that's really advantageous when it gets uh, into technical terrain. So there's no, there's no clutch or anything. It's a, a CVT type transmission, much like you'd find on an ATV where you, you have a belt and it's load and, and RPM sensitive. And, uh, yeah, a three speed transmission, each gear runs from zero to the top speed. And the third gear is the fastest and it takes you up on my, my model. I have it running right at about 35 miles per hour flat out. So top speed is not very much. And you mentioned CVT. So kind of like an ATV in a way, more than a motorcycle. Yes. And it, it, it feels actually ATV ish when you're on it. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you twist the throttle wide open and you have kind of a, a, a steady RPM, right? And the machine will increase speed and lower speed depending on what type of train you're going after. If you're going uphill, obviously you lose quite a bit of speed. Um, you find yourself having to downshift periodically. People say most of the time you spend on a Rokan is in second gear. Uh, I generally, I actually do use it around my neighborhood and I'll commute. I'll go to the grocery store and things like that. I'm always in third gear, <laughs> flat out. <laughs> it's, it's like roughly 200 CC. You've mentioned seven horsepower. I mean, it seems like, you know, if you think of the TW 200, I don't know. I can't remember what the horsepower is on that, but I kind of think it's like 25 or something, isn't it? It is. I actually toured on one of those too. It's mm. another story for another time. <laughs> so seven horsepower is quite small. Like this is, this is, um, and even the torque, I don't think is all that much. No, it's, uh, oh boy, I, I feel guilty. I'm not able to quote numbers, but it's, the torque is, is definitely more substantial than the horsepower. Um, what the number is, I can't say offhand, but it, again, the intention, the design is not that of high speed, right? It's, it's versatility, it's slow speed and really go anywhere type of performance. They're remarkable when it comes to being able to take you places that you really shouldn't be able to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The torque is not so much the engine. It's, it's all the gearing that it has. I mean, You've got your 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 gearbox and you've got your belt and and then you've got your final gears going to the wheels, which I've seen them on these. I've never had a Rokon, but I've seen them. You know, very small uh, drive gear and a, and a quite a large, kind of like a mini bike, a big driven <laughs> gear on the wheel. Yes, that's correct. But the the real key to this thing, and the thing is that the, I think that probably got you all excited about this is two wheel drive. That that's what makes this thing different, isn't it? That's what captured my imagination. And going back to when I was a little boy and reading things like uh, Boy's Life or uh, Popular Mechanics, things like that, these things were advertised in the back, you know, and they were they were advertised as go anywhere vehicles. And uh, it, ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated with them. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I started this search for a new platform that I kind of stumbled back upon the, the Rokon and I'd seen like they, they'd advanced since the seventies, but not a heck of a lot. I mean, ultimately they're still kind of the same crude, uh, agricultural type look that they, they always were, but what a, a neat concept. I mean, you've got what a Rokon consists of a You've got your drive belt, you've got a drive shaft, and you've got three separate chains and two angle drives. I mean, that is 
that's industrial right there. I love that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, function before form. And it just struck me as, as this type of vehicle that there really wouldn't be a lot that could stop me. Uh, I mean, you can go into the local hardware store and fix just about anything on it. It's a, a Kohler engine. So, <laughs> I mean, that's really common so you stuff. you just go to the lawnmower section. <clears throat> Yeah, go to the lawnmower <laughs> section and and off you go. <laughs> so, but but I mean, as far as this thing being a motorcycle, is it licensed for the road? I licensed it for the road, so it is fully plated. And I, uh, boy, talk about the bare minimum. I shouldn't even say this stuff out loud, but uh, I put reflectors on it, and uh, I mean, it's. I didn't change the tires out, <laughs> so <laughs> they're they're ATV tires. But yeah, it has a brake and tail light and a license plate, and it's insured and has a headlight. I don't have blinkers. You you had to add these things in to get it street legal. I did. Oh, yes. I right. Yeah. So what are you going to do with the bike now? You 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 got a Rokon. What are you going to do with it? Uh, I am going to take it as far off the beaten track as I can and try to get myself back into a place where I'm comfortable exploring and touring and seeing new places. That's, that's what was in my head anyway. I would love to have been there at the kitchen table with a microphone, maybe just sitting off to the side on a, uh, like unnoticed from everyone while you sat there and told your wife your new plans. <laughs> she she comes to expect this stuff from me. There's always something goofy going on in my head that I want to try next, and I you know, I get a lot of, of flack for it, right? Because the ro- the a hard tail, and I have a bad back. I mean, I do. So mm-hmm. it it's kind of a bad idea from the onset if you look at it from that perspective. But she was. She was great. She was like, it. well, I mean, it goes 35 miles per hour, and that's flat out. I mean, if you're on a trail, you're not going that fast. And she knew that I wanted to to try to take it on a, I'll call it an adventure-style tour, right, where unsupported, I carry my own gear, and I mm-hmm. get off the grid. So, yeah, uh, she, was, she was all in. She was just kind of anxious to see what I came up with. Well, I'm sure the 35-mile-an-hour <laughs> maximum helps that that certainly uh helps the picture yes it does i I don't know if i can say this on the air but they're inherently unsexy machines right so there's no risk of of going out and looking really good and and appealing (laughs) on a rocon i'm not gonna you're not gonna show off uh, no i'm not gonna show off (laughs) i'm not gonna you know (laughs) (laughs) that's true it's, I mean, it'd be like taking your riding lawnmower down to the, the grocery store and trying to show off with it, right? Yeah, a lot like that. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean to diss the Rokon because I, like, I'm in love with them. If, <laughs> if I could find one cheap, I would love to get one. I really would. But um, so, um, so what was your plan? What did you come up with? Uh, there is an event called CORE. It's a Keweenaw Overland Adventure Retreat, I believe the acronym is. And it's, it's in the... Upper Peninsula of Michigan, so it's in the the very tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula, which is it juts off the the north side of the UP into Lake Superior, and the the retreat they call it was a rendezvous at the very end in a small town called Copper Harbor. So um, we have a cabin that's in Wisconsin, 
and it was a good jumping off point. So I thought, what if I could string a, a route together off-road from the cabin up to this adventure retreat and try to do the whole thing on a Rokon with camping gear and you know all the necessary things to, to see me through. And that's what got the plan rolling. So I signed up for the core event. So I felt committed. You know, I had my campsite and I had a plan and a, a date. And I, from there, I just, I pulled out the maps and I use a, a couple of different apps on my phone that helped me plot some routes because the, the trail that I was going to take was largely built off of a network of ORV trails and snowmobile trails and other things. You know, you always want to stay on public land where it's legal to ride. Mm -hmm. uh, so I spent quite a lot of time pouring over the map and, and plotting out a route that would get me up there and keep me off of the beaten path. So the whole idea is, is not touch pavement. You, you want to stay on dirt. I want to stay on dirt. And I didn't take the level like uh, where I'm, you know, carrying the thing over pavement or anything like that. I, <laughs> I knew there was going to be uh, stretches where I'd have to ride on a shoulder, you know, a mile here, a mile there kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> overall, it actually turned out to be easily 99.5% off-road. So you get up, um, I guess you started on this thing, you got up to the, the shore Lake Superior and you had an interesting run-in where you're camping. Can you tell that story? I can, I can tell that story, yeah. So uh, in the Porcupine Mountains, there's a campground up there. And I rolled in in the afternoon and I set up my camp. It's just a, a public campground. It was a really nice facility. And like you said, on the shore of Lake Superior. And I get my camp set, camp set up. And uh, I, I don't carry a ton. I definitely don't uh, eat. Well, when I'm camping, I generally grab canned stuff and box stuff and throw it in the panniers and go. And in this case, <clears throat> I had a can of Hormel chili and a box of Triscuits. I think that was like my, that and a canteen for water was my cuisine for the night. And I pulled this stuff out and put it on the picnic table. And I was facing my bike and I think I was trying to put together a camp chair or something and I sensed I sensed a presence behind me. <laughs> I, I turned around and there was a, a fella standing there in like a kimono. And he had uh, long hair and a braid and a beard. It was, I mean, a little bit Jesus-like, you know. And he's standing there and he had this plate of food. And he was like, would you care for any hors d'oeuvres? And I, again, I travel alone. It's not that I'm antisocial, but I do value my time. And I normally won't sit down with a, a stranger and eat, especially maybe not in that particular type of environment and a person with a kimono at a campsite, you know. It, it, but anyway, I looked down at the guy's plate and he had, uh, it was this artisan bread and there was uh, brie melted on the top and what looked like smoked salmon. I mean, it just looked like phenomenal food. And I, at that point I was really hungry. I didn't want my Hormel chili. I didn't want to have to clean my jet boil. And I was like, you know what? I'd love hors d'oeuvres. And he goes, well, you do what you need to do and come over to the campsite. I'm right over there when you're done. 
and we'll eat. <laughs> I thought, great. Um, so, you know, five minutes later, I wander over and uh, he's got, he, he too is, is traveling alone. <clears throat> and he's got one of the most elaborate kitchen setups I think I'd ever seen in all my years of camping. And there's a, a great big kettle of water on this fire that looked like it had been burning for days and the water was hot and he kept it going all the time for dishes and things like that. And, um, this picnic table was set up like a commercial kitchen and he had uh, homemade, uh, pesto and I think rotini type pasta and a really great salad. And he had all, he had, he had smoked white fish and salmon and uh, bread that he had picked up from an Amish uh, bakery. And he had a, ultimately fed me this fantastic dinner. And he started to tell me stories about himself and his life. Jim, this guy turned out to be one of the single most fascinating people I'd ever met in my life. Wow. Um, yeah, I think when I, I spoke to you earlier, uh, I mentioned the word guru. Mm-hmm. It kind of felt like that. Like he'd spent a, a ton of time in, in Nepal and he'd been all over the world. And sometimes when I hear people tell stories like this, I maybe I have some doubts. Like, is this is this for real? Is this guy off his, his rocker <laughs> a little bit? His details and everything, they were all in place. So I, I'm pretty confident he was legit. And how was he traveling? Uh, he had a, he had a, uh, I believe a Subaru wagon and there's a kayak on the top and he was just on, he only said he was on tour. He didn't give me a, a destination. He wasn't pursuing any activities specifically. He was just on tour. Hmm. So we talked into the night and, uh, man, really, uh, I learned a lot about about this guy and I learned a lot about some different lifestyles and I left, I think a a better person than I, I came. (laughs) So you stayed up late just, just listening to stories and then you head off to bed. Yep. I stayed up probably he, he enjoyed a cocktail or two. I'll say that we didn't. I, at that point I'm, I'm totally sober, but he had several beers and wines and what have you. And we stayed up till, probably two o'clock and I wandered back over to my tent and, uh, went to bed and I had, I just, I didn't sleep very well. I don't know if I was excited for the next day or what, but I started stirring in my sleeping bag probably around 5 AM. And I, I looked out and the guy had vanished without a trace gone. I mean, it was like he was never there. I actually started questioning whether or not it had happened or if <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Do you, do you do that? Do you start to question yourself and wonder, but I mean, you weren't drinking anything, so you have nothing to blame it on. <laughs> nothing. No, I woke up and it was as though it never happened. There wasn't a single trace. So the only way you could have pulled that off is by like packing this ultra elaborate kitchen set up and taking the tent down and everything just right after I left and silently somehow leaving. Wow. So was there some message or thought that he left you with that you, you felt that really made a point and maybe that was what it was all about? He definitely left me with the thought that I have had really bad 
dietary and cuisine choices over the last several decades of camping. Um, I've done a terrible job <laughs> with menu <laughs> choices, but um, he gave me he gave me a sense of, or, or maybe made it apparent to me that judging a book by its cover, it's not the right way to do anything. And, um, and I'm not saying necessarily that that's what I did, but of course it, it was an unusual circumstance and he was an unusual character. And, uh, maybe I had some judgment early on, but, um, what, what an incredible host and a, and a good person he was. So that's, that's kind of what it left me with. Why do you think he came over to you to begin with? Maybe because he saw the the Rokan and was curious because who wouldn't be really? It's a weird looking machine. Um, but then maybe he saw the Hormel Chili in Triscuits and pitied me. <laughs> you never, you never know. <laughs> this guy's in serious need of help. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's maybe there's some of that. So this, this adventure that you're on to go to this, this overland retreat, overland adventure retreat. Why, why is it called a retreat? Uh, that is a, a question that I had too. It was a different uh, naming strategy than, than you'd think of with an overland event. Yeah, well, I, I can't uh, quite get whether it's a, like an event that you're going to a trail runner or it's a building that you're headed to. It's kind of a collection of, of each of those things. It happens primarily at a campground and there are a number of overland vendors that go and really some extraordinary vehicles, purpose-built vehicles. Uh, and then there is also a network of trails that uh, people will go out on. It caters to four-wheeled vehicles and also motorcycles have a pretty good presence. Hmm. And uh, there's a section of the campground that's dedicated to teardrop campers and there's a section dedicated to adventure riders and um, a, a number of different speakers and curated events and uh, tours and things like that. So it's they do a really great job with the event. It uh, it's a neat thing to to see. Hmm. You had um, one section that was was particularly difficult for you. Was that on the way there or on the way back? That was on the way there. Yeah, and it was a section that I had looked at on the map, and I had planned a, a different route from the onset of the trip that that took me quite a ways off course down south trying to stay on gravel. And I, I started to look in, at my GPS and rethink if there was a possibility to shorten that and go with a little bit more of a trail-like environment rather than a gravel off-road or like ORV trail. And one of the apps actually mapped this thing as a, I think it was a snowmobile trail. And then if you look at Google Maps, there's, there's nothing there. But when you go to satellite view and you start to zoom in, you can see kind of a dim black line reminiscent of a trail. So I made the decision to just give it a shot. I mean, I'm on a Rokon, right? They stop for nothing. So I made my way up towards where the dim line started. I was going to try to shave 10 miles off of the trip in, in place of this off-road adventure. And I make my way down this river rock track 
and there's a Amish farmstead on the right hand side and I keep moving in an easterly direction towards where I saw this line on the satellite view and the main track dog legs 90 degrees north and the track that I was planning to take kept going straight and I I can't express it there wasn't even a, a faint deer trail there was nothing it was like a wall of forest and swamp and it went straight and I at that point I'd committed I didn't want to backtrack I didn't want to go back on the the planned route so I thought what the heck I'll twist the throttle and go and it it turned out to be probably just shy of 10 miles but it took me through terrain that I I mean of course you could walk through it but there was a number of sections in the path where I, I mean, I know from experience a quad wouldn't have gotten through. Uh, so it felt like I was actually on a Rokon trail. Uh, I had to get off in a number of different spots. Uh, there was at one point a stream that cut through the landscape and on either bank was probably a five to six foot washout drop into the water and then back up the other side. Not something you could walk through. If I had been on a even a 250, even a TW200, I think would have been pretty difficult to get across. But the Rokon, I was able to get off it and just use the the gas accelerator and and maneuver my way down and back up the other bank. So it it put me through uh, my paces and up some really steep hills, fully loaded. I'm a big guy and there were no issues at all. It really is a go anywhere, do anything machine as long as you can tolerate the slow pace. So is it the the frame, the seat, those big balloon tires, or is it the fact that that front wheel drives? It is, it's definitely in the front wheel. You know, you look at some of the competitors like Christini, I think is a, a two wheel drive bike. And that's like a, it's almost like a front wheel assist. They, they run a hydraulic pump to turn the front wheel. Rokon is direct drive. Uh, yes, there's a, there's an overrun clutch in the drive shaft that helps differentiate wheel speed a bit, but it, it pulls. And if you're, there's a front rack, I had a lot of gear loaded up front, so I had weight in the right places. Um, but yeah, it, I think the two wheel drive is the single biggest factor. It does make you wonder about motorcycles, why they don't, why more manufacturers don't tackle that front wheel drive. I mean, there's nowadays there's a number of ways. I mean, you mentioned hydraulics, but even there's electric. Um, I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of options there to explore for manufacturers, but they, they don't do it. Yeah, it, it could be something that, that turns up. But the interesting thing about it is motorcycles, just a conventional rear drive motorcycle. They're incredibly versatile. They will go nearly anywhere you point mm-hmm. them. The two wheel drive is, seems very, it's a very specific market. <laughs> well, it's a different style of riding, isn't it? And, and again, I, I have not ridden the Rocom, but I can imagine what it's like. You're, you're driving much slower. So you don't do things like momentum really isn't the same as what you use on a regular one wheel drive motorcycle. Yeah, that's that's correct. And really, I guess the the thrill factor is probably not quite there either. You have a number of people that really enjoy getting out on a desert track and just blazing mm-hmm. across the terrain. And <clears throat> that's not the the Rokan, Rokan takes a different mentality. You have to 
really want to get off the grid. <laughs> and does does the speed, you know, being the maximum speed is so slow, does does that not sort of grate on you on a long trip like this? It didn't for me because I had set the expectation early on in my head. I, I knew what I was getting into. And I tried to keep the the terrain or the route at least enough off-road oriented to, I guess, work nicely with the speed of the Rokon. Mm. Even if I was on a, a full-fledged dual sport or an adventure bike, I, I wouldn't be the person that's blazing down the trails fast. I generally like to go at a pretty slow pace. I like to see things a lot mm-hmm. because I find when I, I pick up the pace, I miss a lot of the stuff that I otherwise would stop and maybe take a picture of or explore. But anytime you get to one of those open spots though, you know, that's where the the adventure motorcycle comes into its own because you can just open up the throttle, pick another gear and you're zipping through it. Yes. I would not choose the Rokan for any type of an adventure that had open road for sure. That mm-hmm. would not be a path I'd take. <laughs> I'm patient. I'm not that patient. <laughs> so this is the Rokan's more of a vehicle, I guess, that you would put on your on a trailer or on the back of your vehicle or something take it somewhere to ride, you know, on an adventure, maybe if you're going camping or something. Yeah, I think that'd be a good approach. Um, I think I mentioned to you, I've, I have some interest in some of the backcountry discovery routes. And uh, would I get on the Rokon at my house in Minnesota and drive out west? No, that wouldn't be a, it'd take me 30 days to get there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> 30 very long, somewhat boring days. Yes. Yes. Right. But once you're on the trails, certainly any technical stuff, that's that's where I'm sure anyone riding a, a, a large adventure bike would be looking at you, thinking, "Man, I wish I was on that right now." Yeah, they are so much fun, you know, to get out there and and you don't care if you drop a Rokan and you can pick them up easy. And again, there's there's only hand controls, so your feet. You see a lot of videos where people are paddling along with their feet. And it, it kind of looks goofy, but in a way, um, if you've got a prosthetic hip, that's there's a level of comfort there. So <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so where are you now on the on the whole motorcycle safety, fear of injury, and and all of that? Are you back on the bike again, or and and how does that sit with you? I am on a course towards being fully back on the bike, and uh, I I am not there yet. The, the Rokan trip was something that just happened here in the last fall. Um, but I have spent the winter outfitting uh, an Airhead BMW. I've got an old R90 slash six. It's the same age as I am, actually. And uh, I've got that bike m- more built towards travel enduro configuration than a street bike. And uh, I've already got two trips on the calendar coming up for the spring and summer. So I I would say by, you know, God willing and the creek don't rise, as they say, by, by the end of next summer, I'll be back, back on bikes as much as I was before. At least I'm hoping. <laughs> the R96, that's a street bike, right? It is. It's funny. If you look at the... Uh, BMWs from that era, they're just, they're almost like universal motorcycles. You can do anything on them. They, it, it's a street bike, but um, they're so 
robust and everything is metal and they're infinitely rebuildable. I love that about them. And they really do make good usable power. Um, I love the shaft drive. And I think if you put, I put Owens on it and I put some progressive springs up front and uh, it's got a GS oil pan with a skid plate and it's got panniers and uh, knobbies. And I, I've got pretty high expectations that hmm. for the riding that I do, it'll, it'll work pretty well. I like the sound of it. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a really neat old bike. And if it doesn't work, then I, I've always had a, an eye on the T7. I really like that bike. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a, a brand new bike. Oh, that'd be something completely different. So is, is there something holding you back from riding right now? Or is this just a, the process that you're doing, doing the, the R96 up? The only thing that's holding me back right now is about 36 inches of snow. <laughs> right now as we speak. Right. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yes, here as well. I'd, uh, it, my wife is not delighted that I have, you know, the spike ready to go and I've already got a camping trip planned. Mm. Um, but she also knows how important it is to me. So she's supporting me and I'm, I'm trying to be respectful and, um, not, not go over the top right out of the gate. And I also agreed that my, my travels would be kept to primarily off-road based and you know, try to stay out of inner city congestion and places that could get me into trouble where other cars might be a hazard. It's a tough line to walk, isn't it? With our family, you know, if you have family that doesn't want you to ride, and it's certainly understandable there's the, with the increased risk. But it, but it's um, difficult to sort of manage that and satisfy our own desire for riding the love of riding a motorcycle and adventure. Yeah, it's it is a really hard line to walk. But again, if if motorcycling is your passion, you know you you need to advocate and and try to take a a reasonable approach that will allow you to continue riding. And I mm-hmm. feel like um, I've made strides towards that with my my wife and boys. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, just a, a, a huge pleasure to, to be on the show. I sure appreciate you uh, giving me some time to tell my story. I was speaking with Patrick Cheever from his home in Excelsior, Minnesota. We've got some photos from Patrick's Rocon adventure in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks from our, our for <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Special thanks for to our producer. Wow, what is wrong with me? Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. 
and you, thank you very much for being a part of this by listening. Hey, if you're not doing it already, I would really appreciate it if you drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you for your pannier, your toolbox, whatever. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our raw show and we have in between there, but we'd really appreciate it if you would consider the patron option. That is a monthly option. You can do any amount. Think about what you spend on a cup of coffee, a donut or whatever it is you get and how much pleasure you get from that. And then what you're getting from Adventure Rider Radio and just, you know, see if it's worth um, putting something towards because it is built on that and we we do um, what we need it. Anyway, so if if you can do it, I'd appreciate it. That's at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hope I didn't say that too fast. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. I'm still not able to ride. It's still snow and everything here, but spring is just right around the corner. And I'm telling you, I am just dying for spring to come. Anyway, I will talk to you next week. Thanks very much. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 